Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Today's episode, we meet poet and prose writers Alice Osborne and David Poston, who share the socially conscious poetry, essays, and songs. Alice sings, not David, who only hums a bit. We explore a variety of thought-provoking and haunting topics, including David's essay on how reading made him a better person in the face of the Me Against You movement, and Alice's obsession to write prose and sing songs about the Donner Party, a family that traveled west for a new life over 170 years ago and got stranded in the snow in the Sierra Nevada mountains. We talk about Frankenstein, hear a poem about Chuck Norris and Jesus, and one called Bottom Drawer, where a library book about civil rights was hidden by a young girl from her father. We start first with Alice reading the poem Hunger, and David reading the poem When Hot People Die. Hunger is. Hunger is a plastic bag in May, waltzing across bare parking lots. The neighborhood's tarred-up telephone poles, drenched in sepia and creosote, trapped famished flies. Can hunger be strength? A willful dance of power, denial, refusal? Stop your whining and do your writing instead of distracting yourself with cheese sticks and lightly salted peanuts. Eat and eat. Never be satisfied. If you don't eat, you won't die. This isn't the grapes of wrath. You need courage not to give in to buying more Amazon t-shirts. Sustainable striped scarves more cookbooks for all the uses of buttermilk. But yes, to more drinking books about the history of whiskey. How does the angel share evaporate more drops in Kentucky than Scotland? Another hour lost to heavy alcohol study. Hunger locks you into the future, but also the past. Can't leave this place of neither up or down. Meditate, contemplate, Without attention, you'll wither like those angry grapes or starving insects. You don't want to eat silence. You want bacon. Fried, please, with the crispy ends covered in pimento cheese. You know, the homemade kind. I hate it 
when hot people die. Caitlin DeBrittany during high school class change, 23 January 2008. The morning she wakes up to find that dying young is not to be her fate, it won't matter as much as anything she's facing today. Though already she's noticed it's fickle cachet. Won't be surprised at the cottage industry and images of Marilyn and James Dean with skinny Elvis doesn't make room at the counter for Heath Ledger. Shaking off the dregs of the fat Elvis nightmare, she'll understand then, in a way far beyond anything she might imagine now, what drove Steve McQueen to the Mexican clinic despite the odds. And she'll ask the mirror why anyone would be dying to be that cool. Gastonia poet and writer David Poston taught for 30 years in public schools at UNC Charlotte and at Charlotte's Young Writers Workshop. His work has appeared in numerous publications and he's the author of My Father Reading Greek and Postmodern Bourgeois Potaster Blues, which won the North Carolina Writers Network's Randall Gerald Harper Prince Chapbook Award. His full-length collection, Slow of Study, was a finalist for the Texas Review Press Breakthrough Prize in North Carolina. David serves on the workshop committee for the North Carolina Poetry Society and on the boards of the Friends of the Gaston County Public Library, Gaston Literacy Council, and Charlotte Writers Club. He's also active with the Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, where he's presented lectures on Frankenstein and served as a facilitator for the Beautiful Truth Initiative, a series of community writing workshops. Alice Osborne is a multi-genre author, singer-songwriter, and editor for hire from Raleigh, North Carolina, whose most recent CD is Old Derelicts. Her poetry collections include Heroes Without Capes, After the Steaming Stops, and Unfinished Projects. Alice loves writing songs about American history that frequently return to the themes of home, identity, and yearning. Her family has deep roots going back before the Revolution. A former editor for Wake Living Magazine, Alice is also the editor of the anthologies Tattoos and Creatures of Habit, both from Main Street Rag. The North Carolina Writers Network, North Carolina Poetry Society, and North Carolina Songwriters Co-op board member, and a Pushcart Prize nominee. She's currently working on a novel and CD about the ill-fated diner party. She plays acoustic guitar, Celtic fiddle, and bluegrass banjo. Alice, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much, Landis. Yeah, and David, uh, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So we got two poets who also uh, write prose. How does that work? <laughs> uh, David, you started out, uh, you taught uh, high school for years. Uh, how was it teaching high school kids poetry? Well, you know, the <laughs> they um, had to learn that there were poets who had not died and decomposed and <laughs> rotted away. and They had to um, realize it had some relevance. And uh, you kind of go from there. It's not all, it's not all Shakespeare and uh, Longfellow. Thank goodness. And Alice, you've been a poet for some time, but you describe yourself as sort of a multi-genre author, singer-songwriter, and editor for hire. So you do everything. I do, but <laughs> uh, I would start saying I was a poet since I was little, since I've always been sad. You've always been sad. What have you been <laughs> sad about? Oh, various things. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is not a th- this is not a therapy session, but uh, but that uh, makes yeah. me a better poet because then I can I can go back to that well and go oh I'm sad and yeah. then and then because I think the best poets for me poetry is about conflict and going to that spot where you feel that emotional rawness and you can better connect to your audience because that's what being a human being is all about connecting to those emotions without mm. being robot girl. 
mm. and trying to and putting on the mask that everyone expects you to put on to go about your daily life. And I can't do that. So, I gotta be. I gotta be. Um, <laughs> that's the trouble with Alice. Gotta yeah. gotta be authentic, and that's so, what makes me a poet. Sounds like a good uh, Netflix uh, sitcom. That's the trouble with Alice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so David, she talks about sadness influencing her poetry. What what influences yours? Well, I think what I've learned to do recently is, you know, I wrote some pretty horrible high school poetry. I don't know if you saved yours or not, Alice, but uh, <laughs> I actually didn't burn all of mine. Um, you, you start to learn to see the humor and stuff and also how the best poetry hits several levels that you find the humor, you find the sadness. You've got to put something out there that people can relate to and you've got to get it it starts with your experience, but you've got to make it go beyond your experience and figure out where the poem leads you. Mm. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about these first two pieces you wrote. And by all means, I'm, I'm not a poet, so y'all jump in and participate as well. Uh, but I, I've got a couple of questions here about each of these uh, poems, starting, uh, Alice, with hunger. What were you hungry for when you wrote this piece? I was thinking about my son, Daniel, because when he was a baby, that's all he would do is eat and eat and eat, and he wouldn't stop, and he's still that way now. He takes food to his room and, and hides it and eats Girl Scout cookies, denudes them. We, the skeletons are left all over his dresser drawer. <laughs> I was thinking about that I was as I was forming the poem, and then I was also thinking about this hunger of having to be a creative person where you cannot be anything else you have to create but then you also put these blocks in front of you to procrastinate uh, my procrastination blocks either are being very busy where I don't have that time to create and you're running around doing this 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 which helps but you really have to slow down mm. and I did that yesterday I was supposed to be somewhere and I canceled because I had to get things done so that I could get um, my deadlines met and that in the poem is where you're always looking at Amazon trying to buy things or uh, oh that's neat oh that's a rabbit hole oh that's cool that's my research but <laughs> it's not serving you as a creative person which you told yourself you would be and that's the that's the conflict and it's not sad but it, it's a point of frustration mm -hmm. where I felt this and I thought it would be fun to also combine another poem that I did many about 10 years ago and I combined I did a mashup of that poem and that's in the first stanza where I went to creosote and flies and then I started thinking about the grapes of wrath of hunger which is my favorite classic book by John Steinbeck and all of this has nothing to do with the Donner Party which is my fascination but yeah, we'll, we'll get it to the does Donner Party. it yeah, does because yeah. this was written way before <laughs> so so you've got this line in there um or stands, I guess. Can hunger be strength, a willful dance of power, denial, refusal? So how, how is hunger a form of denial and refusal to you? Where you're hungry for your goal and nothing else matters. Mm. And you don't put other, you don't put your roadblocks in front of you. Mm. You, or your, um, you don't get in your own way, which, oh. is, which is you strip yourself of needing to do that. And, and hunger, sometimes you can just, stay still and succumb to the darkness and and you're still hungry and you give up but in this stanza what I was thinking about was uh, rushing up to your feet and fighting even though you're still so hungry 
and not letting your hunger stop you, but actually drive you to madness in a way and obsession. But you sated us at the end with uh, your bacon, crispy, <laughs> little pimento cheese involved. I, I got kind of hungry at the end of that. Good, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's why you get angry. So <laughs> I, I got to rush and get up to that to get that bacon. Yeah. Well, let's talk about hot people for a second. Da- David. Uh, always. Uh, yeah, always. Uh, first of all, tell us about the title. Uh, I hate it uh, when hot people die. So the morning after Heath Ledger's death, um, I'm standing in the hall on hall duty at the high school where I was teaching at the time. And um, Caitlin, who I called Caitlin in the poem because that's really her name, uh, just was walking down the hall and with great indignation said to her friend Brittany, I hate it when hot people die. Mm. And uh, I also have a, um, uh, I'm a fan of Steve McQueen and so he came, yeah. yeah. Uh, Thomas Crown Affair, Bullet, the whole bit. <laughs> but he, uh, the, the last stanza talks about his, his demise, which uh, he was looking desperately for some way to prolong his life, as anybody would. And then I just thought about the infamous uh, black velvet paintings and all that stuff. So mm. all came together. You know, what about this idea that uh, being the two cool movie star can lead to a young death. It happens too often, but uh, it's certainly something that we see a lot and wonder about. It seems like the the, the person the, the person in your piece is wondering about whether she or he, whoever's got it better, because they're not a hot person. Where are we going with that, David? Well, you know, I'm figuring out as we talk, Landis. And one thing that I I'm trying to analyze my own poem, which yeah. we all have to do. Uh, so it's both about the death of a celebrity and also the fact that there's a human being behind this mm-hmm. who was afraid and who was ill. Um, and, of course, now Fat Elvis came into the poem kind of later as I tried <laughs> to imagine, you know, when you're in high school, the way you look at things is so refreshing. And then as you get older, you know, will you look back and realize uh, there are we all learn there are more important things than the celebrities we worship at the time, or we hope we do. So, you know, I'm casting that wide net, or a lot of things came into the poem, just about celebrity and mortality and what it boils down to. All right, so when uh, when poets get together and they hear each other read read their work, what do you all do to each other? Do you, do you dissect each other's work right there on the spot? Or? Well, I'm fangirling right now because <laughs> I love Steve McQueen, and I wrote a poem about him, and... Yeah. One of my favorite TV shows, True Detective, they made a whole episode about the whole day was the day that Steve McQueen died. And all the characters kept saying, the day Steve McQueen died, November 7th, 1980. <laughs> and I, I'm so excited to be with um, my friend David, who is also a Steve McQueen fan. And I wrote a song about Steve McQueen. And Did not know we had this in common. I, mean, just, yeah. right. I mean, I have, I used to have a Mustang, so it was... Deberger, I mean, you, I mean, I can't call myself a Mustang owner if I don't know the history of Steve McQueen. Yeah. I've got this uh, vision as you're talking about the movie The Great Escape when he's you know, on the motorcycle trying oh. to, to, to go away and jumps the fence and gets tangled and once again doesn't make it out. Yeah. But, uh, it was actually his buddy Bud who did yeah. the stunt because insurance wouldn't let Steve do it. Uh, those damn lawyers. I know. Yeah. Lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> and Papillon. Uh, Happy on, great movie. Yeah. So. All right, well, we're gonna we're gonna move now to uh, some of your prose writing, and uh, we're gonna start 
with a piece that uh, that you've written, David. That's a bit uh, autobiographical here, I suppose. Uh, and uh, you got some uh, social justice ideas, you know, percolating uh, through this. So this should be fun. Um, so give us a title, and then uh, and then read a little bit about yourself. This is how I got the Red State Blues, a bibliography. And I will say this, it was written in 2014, but to update it for today, I simply added one name, and y'all will all recognize it, I'm sure. How I Got the Red State Blues, a bibliography. Everybody from one day to another has the blues, Albert King. Your blues ain't like mine, B.B. Moore Campbell. My blues, since I'm a southern white guy of what Howie Good would call late middle age, you might think they'd be the Tea Party Blues, but I'm just not feeling that angst, that need to defend traditional marriage from loving gay couples, the voting booth from people of color, the state economy from hardworking immigrants willing to do jobs no one else wants, or the poor from nutrition, education, or affordable health care. I'm feeling more and more alienated from many of my good conservative friends and neighbors. I blame my reading habits. As early as fifth grade, when Mrs. Burns caught me reading Treasure Island during math time, I was already doomed to never be a job creator. In high school, I was a kid reading Fire in the Lake and the Female Eunuch. The former inspired my endless Vietnam War debates with Mr. Hamilton in American history class, and the latter titillated and terrified me. My teaching career exposed me to their eyes were watching God, things fall apart. The Handmaid's Tale, Invisible Man, The Poisonwood Bible. When students told me they had trouble with the idiom of their eyes were watching God, I would smile to myself remembering the first time I met Janie walking back into town at the beginning of the novel like she had grapefruits in her hip pockets, with the great rope of black hair swinging to her waist and unraveling in the wind like a plume. Janie and company used expressions I'd never seen in print before but had often heard as a teenager working in the farm fields of eastern North Carolina. Yet Janie strained my understanding in a different way. She stirred not just memories of adolescent longing, not just admiration, but also pity and something like fear. Janie grew to heroic status in my eyes. She pulled me into a broader and deeper understanding of the human condition. My bad reading habits got worse when I retired from teaching. I had time to read the unabridged Les Miserables, Emile Zola's Germinal, the USA Trilogy, Azar Nafisi's reading Lolita in Tehran, and, worst of all, the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wilde. I suppose I could blame my friend Ron. He introduced me to the work of Reginald Dwayne Betts, invited me to go hear Sherman Alexie speak, gave me volumes of Jimmy Santiago Baca's poetry. It's his fault I've read Sea Train and 13 Mexicans, A Place to Stand, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven. Shahid reads his own poem. Lately, it's all come to a head. Reading Victor Hugo makes it hard to see the one and a half million people who qualify for food stamps in this state as deadbeats. Reading Zola makes it impossible to disregard the human cost of fracking or the wider implications of a coal ash spill in the Dan River. Reading Dos Passos informed my view of the Occupy movement, colored my perspective on Mitt Romney and his comments about the 47%, and has made it impossible 
for me to trust Bank of America or the coastal developers who are trying to write climate change denial into law. Reading Nafisi made me remember Atwood, also made it very difficult to see the difference between the rule imposed by Islamic fundamentalists abroad and the social agenda of Christian fundamentalists in our own society, particularly with regard to women. When Paul Vallone, the head of the gun rights group Grassroots North Carolina, ridicules concerns about juvenile gun deaths in this country because, as he carefully explains, the majority of gun violence victims are black male teenagers, I cannot dismiss them as easily. Where he sees the faces of thugs on our streets and in our parks, I see Trayvon Martin and Reginald Dwayne Betts and Oscar Wilde. My friend Ron grew up poor in Georgia and he learned how bologna had to be sliced before it was fried, as Sherman Alexi did on the reservation. Alexi calls fried bologna one of the bonds of poor people, whatever their ethnicity. I ate my share of fried bologna and salmon cakes growing up, and so I feel some sort of bond with Janie Crawford and Thomas Builds the Fire. And believe it or not, with Oscar. Oscar asserts the essential humanity of everyone trying to grow up to find his or her way, to live a fulfilled life in urban America or anywhere else in the post-Columbian, post-colonial, post-Cold War world. Like Junior, I look at his brief life with, well, wonder. I want to be as fearless as Oscar Wilde. I get what Reginald Dwayne Betts means when he says not to write about being white. I don't want to write about being white or black, red or blue, the 1% or the 99% or which immigrants have somehow acquired the right to close the country they took from indigenous people to newer immigrants. I want to write and talk about givers and takers, those who embrace and those who fear, those who think they must defend what they have and those who realize they must share it. My steadiest gig these days is taking care of my great nephew while his mother teaches middle school mathematics. I play a lot of music for him, Taj Mahal, Rigoletto, the Ramones, and Albert King. He's only nine months old, but soon I'll start teaching him my blues. Right now I'm reading Isabel Allende's The House of the Spirits, in which the old man Pedro Garcia tells his grandson Pedro Tercero the story of the hens who join forces to confront the fox. My great nephew is too young to share Allende's novel or to read Treasure Island or Question of Freedom, but already I can read him some of the essay poems and soon to begin preparing him for the Pinochets and Trujillos and Trumps of this world. I'll read him Monroe Leaf's The Story of Ferdinand. Maybe I'll read it to him in Spanish. All right, David, how I got the Red State Blues. Uh, I want to focus a minute on your opening passage, uh, which I think speaks to much of what's happening in the world today. And I, yeah, I think it's sort of alienation by affiliation. Um, why is it that people are defriending others on Facebook and in person simply because they have different political beliefs? I'm glad you asked that question, Landis. <laughs> I think it's because people do not have the face-to-face -face contact, and you may have to stop me before I go on a roll here, but when people do not uh, communicate face-to-face -face with their neighbors, when they're not involved in local things, when a person is somebody that they can just um, write a hateful comment about on social media it just makes it too easy um, for them to not uh, 
consider how much they have in common. And I love the way that you uh, blame this entire problem on your reading habits. Um, that is, you can find a lot of the answers, you know, in books and in essays. Uh, and yet, uh, people aren't reading as much these days, are they? They are not, and they're and they're losing so much. Um, and every author that I mention in the piece, in every book, you know, that's just a personal slice of things that affected me a lot. Um, I heard Sherman Lexie read at uh, Lenore Ryan in the visiting writer series there. And he talked about having a conversation with the cab driver that drove him from the airport. And that cab driver asked Sherman Alexi, why uh, is there a war on poor people in this world? What have we done to deserve this? And he was serious. And it wasn't even a political statement. It was a um, just a comment on how he felt. And the fried bologna comment made perfect sense. Um, my friend Ron and I talked about it, that, that it was just the fact that people who are poor have so much in common and yet are divided against each other. You know, fried bologna is pretty good. I, when, I, <laughs> when, I got out, yeah. when I got out of school and I was trying to find a job and didn't have any money to live with somebody, we, we fried up some bologna. But we got those packages. They were already sliced. You know, right. <laughs> the cheap kind. But, uh, so, um, Alice, what did you think of this piece? How did it relate to you? It reminds me of not to talk politics with my family in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it is true. I mean, I posted a political post when Jim Acosta was accosted November 9th in the White House briefing room. And as a kid, I looked up to aggressive reporters like Sam Donaldson. Mm -hmm. And the more I found out about Jim Acosta, we both grew up in Annandale, Virginia. We're a year apart in age. He went to James Madison University. I went to Virginia Tech. And I felt this kinship with him. And I said to myself, okay, I usually don't post political things, but to me this is, uh, you know, being robbed of your voice and he's doing his job and a whole bunch of other things. And I put it out there and I, I got some support, but a lot of meanness from people who said, you're wrong. He was being mean. He's a bad reporter. He's he's awful. He's, he's He tells lies. And I could relate very much to what David just said. I said, I, and one of those folks was my handyman. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I don't want my handyman back in my house. And I, I, I wrote it. I wrote it. <laughs> I know what you're talking. I read a piece that appeared in the Observer called "Fence or Freeway," and it was about mm-hmm. the. Uh, not many people know this, but the history in Charlotte. There's a, a cemetery, and they used to separate the black side of the cemetery, African American, from the white. They, mm-hmm. must, they even used a fence. They must have been afraid that the spirits were going to mingle, and they couldn't get over the fence somehow. But uh, it, uh, and then I got some feedback on there that it was a great story until you got political at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but anyway, one thing about your piece, though, David, is that uh, in one respect, there's someone could talk about this being political in nature, but yet humanity and kindness and embracing others shouldn't really have political sides. And part of what I think you're trying to do here is get people to recognize that we don't need to talk about the other as much as we need to talk about what we need to do for others. Am I getting close? Indeed. And just the idea that 
When I mention these stories, it's because these are characters in fiction who became living people that you identified with and you cared about their situation. And we don't listen to each other's stories. We make assumptions. And when we don't do that, when we, can, when we contact each other as people, then everything becomes better. And, you know, that has to happen around kitchen tables and in um, places where people gather face-to-face and not just anonymously. Yeah, and then at the end, uh, you know, somebody might be reading along and really enjoying it, and your last line says, well, maybe I'll read it to him in Spanish, and then someone with some opinion is going to say, no, wait a minute, the, the language here is English. You've got to— American. It's got, yeah, we're American. We're in, you know, so— Nice little, nice little ending there, David. Nice anticipation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so did you get some uh, things off your chest by writing this little piece here? Did it help? It did, but it also, luckily, for it to work, if it does work, is I got past that. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing in a nutshell. We've got to get past getting stuff off our chest, and mm-hmm. we've got to figure out what we have to share that other people might relate to. So... So read more, right? That's one of the lessons, right? Exactly. Okay. Well, David, we're going to segue here into something that, uh, I don't know, Alice, if we asked your family, would they tell me that you are obsessed with the Donner Party? Yes. Yeah, okay. So and they're them, sick of it. <laughs> well, it's nothing to be sick of because uh, we want our listeners to, to, to get introduced to it, right? And they already yeah. know one thing for sure. Like, yeah. well, we already yeah. knew she was weird. but yeah. 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 <laughs> Although it's, a, it's an interesting story. What we're going to have you do, there, there's an essay that you've written that's been published in the uh, anthology Exploration. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And it's uh, you're going to read just a couple paragraphs from this, and then we're going to um, take a break, and you're going to sing a song about it. That's so, right. All right, let's start out. Searching for Paradise. The Donner Party, snow, starvation, cannibalism. Why does this tragedy from 172 years ago obsess me today? I'm fascinated with any story about extreme weather, foolish choices, poor leadership, unexpected heroes, and people who dream about making a better life, but die on the road to achieving it. I don't have an ancestor from the Donner Party, but my father's family who came to America in the 17th and 18th centuries from England and the Netherlands, wanted everything the Donners did, new hope for their families while securing a strong financial future for their children. And we want the same things in America today. Last summer, I fell headlong into Tamsin Donner, who is Mrs. George Donner, the matriarch of the Donner party, who hit all the marks as I created a new folk song. I wanted one with North Carolina ties, a tragic end, a bold story of sacrifice. And that's what a folk song is. It makes meaning for, from situations and for people who died in the prime of their life. With Tamsin Donner, she was an educated school teacher who grew up in Massachusetts and who was also an amateur botanist. And she loved her family, but she also wanted something more than just being housewife. And she had already experienced tragedy when her first family in Elizabeth City died from disease. And she was making a second start. And it's very American to have a second chance. And she was on her second chance when she met George Donner in the 1830s. I felt I could be friends with this woman. And she knew it was a bad idea to follow the Hastings cutoff, which was a much-touted route 
that only the Donners took, and there was a reason nobody else took it. It was impassable. They blazed the trail, and the only good thing about the Hastings, cut, the Hastings cutoff was that it helped the Mormons the next summer. The Donners had to blaze the trail through the Waysatch Mountains and the Great Salt Lake Desert of Utah instead of following the normal trail, which was the Oregon Trail, which did take them north and away. But by taking the Hastings Cutoff, it cost them 30 days, along with food, energy, motivation, and oxen. She told the men that this was a bad idea after they had read the field guide, Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, which was authored by Lansford Hastings, a ambitious lawyer who was only 23 at the time. And he had never actually taken the trail himself, but he looked on a map and he says, well, it's a straight line, looks good, and put everybody in peril. But nobody listened to her, and the shortcut cost them their lives much later down the way when they were trapped in the Sierra Nevada mountains Halloween day, 1846, and their path was blocked. They could not go forward, they could not go back, and rescue teams could not get to them from the west. The Sierra Nevada mountains are very short, sloped, high, high sloped on the east, and slopey, gentle on the west. And they are known for their extreme weather, which actually right now they are experiencing some extreme weather. All right, so you've um, taken this story and you've done several things with it. We'll talk a little bit more about the story, but you've, uh, you've written an essay, you've written a song, which we're going to hear in just a moment. Uh, you're working on a book, right? Yes, and, yeah. yes, I'm working on a novel that is a futuristic <laughs> historical yeah. sci-fi. I was going to ask you, so you, you've taken a tragedy uh, from, from some remote western mountainside and you've put it in space, is that right? Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. so <laughs> the protagonist, she's a descendant of William Eddy, who was one of the heroes of the Donner Party. He lost his wife, he lost mm -hmm. his two kids, and he becomes one of the major rescuers. And he actually rescues Eliza Donner and her two sisters, Georgia and Frances. And so there's a tie-in between Tamsin Donner and William Eddy. And it's going to my my book is going to be twofold point of view from William Eddy as he goes through his struggle and he also lies he's a big liar and his great 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 granddaughter who is of mixed race and she's she doesn't know much about her own father who was really a historian because he she grew up in the east in Myrtle Beach and he grew up or he was living in California when she was a little girl so she grew up with her mom who's black and she identifies more as a black person than as a white person and so she's having a internal conflict as well about the history of manifest destiny and color and so that's that's one of the underlying themes too and she's going to be she's going to be William Eddy she's going yeah. to be a rescuer and she's going to lose people so that the, the past will meet the future there are probably some poems too and some other things that have Donner connected to it yeah that's all I've got okay <laughs> all right well when we when we come back we're gonna um, we're gonna hear Alice sing a song that she wrote that relates to this uh, tragedy uh, and we're also going to do some other things it'll be fun we're going to do a little uh, author author to author uh, segment, then a couple of poems to finish up. So hang with us. 
Hey listeners, I'm here with uh, Alexis Carrera. She is the podcast host of Fun With Failure, part of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey Alexis. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me, what is this thing, Fun With Failure? Well, our tagline is where we laugh with and at you about your flaws, fears, and failures. So did you fail into this podcast or how did that work? I sort of did. I'm a recovering perfectionist. I'm like OCD. I hate to fail. I'm getting over it because it's not really healthy. So I figured, you know, the more fun we have with it and the more we talk about the process that goes into something or a goal that we're trying to achieve, instead of just focusing on the outcome so much, it would kind of help me and other people along the way. Now, this is natural for you because you've got a business called The Pitch Prof where you help people make public speeches, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a pitch coach, a presentation coach, and a public speaking coach. And an author. How about that? Yeah, Yeah, I know. I love, uh, my mom also owned a bookstore when I was growing up. And she named it after me. I started working there when I was 14 years old. So I love authors. I love readers. And I'm a huge fan of your podcast as well. Yeah, thanks. And you've got a book. Uh, you're part of a book coming out called Gone Dogs, right? Yeah. Uh, it's tough, right? Because the dogs are gone. Yeah, it's uh, the first anthology. It's a, the first volume. And it's all about dogs that we have loved and lost. Well, listen to your podcast. You've got a great, uh, I guess we can call it a radio voice, a podcast voice, whatever. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> exactly. So tell us where we can find you. Sure. Well, the website is funwithfailure.com. You can follow us on Twitter at funfailpodcast, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks, Alexa. Thank you. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, listeners, we're back uh, with Alice Osborne and David Poston uh, for the musical portion of this uh, episode of Charlotte Ridge's podcast. Uh, Alice is going to uh, sing a song that she wrote uh, called Searching for Paradise, and it's, uh, it's the story of the Donner Party. Wagons filled with books and wonder. Dear husband navigates in thunder In the fall I'll build a new school Teaching girls math and the golden rule We sped west in the spring of 46 Left too late, opportunities missed Broken axle, your infected hand And now you're dying in the strange land Paradise will guide us around the bend Let this winter end Stop the sky from falling No, the cold from calling No, sir, I cannot leave Please save my children I know some dreams to be the girls in cloaks they step out dry and true 
Mama and Papa will be along someday too. When I gave up, you believed in me. And now your soul is mine to keep. We shiver in this garden of thorns under a blanket thin and worn dreaming our sweet daughters are so safe let's shed the skin i'm not my pain paradise guide them around the bend please let this winter end Stop the sky from falling, oh, the cold from calling by your side for eternity. I know some dreams weren't meant to be. The silence is so harsh and cold. All my corn and milk Will our daughters grow up strong without guilt Paradise Guide them around the bend Please let this winter end Stop the sky from falling, no death from calling. Farewell, goodbye. Why did all my dreams turn into lies? I hear hummingbirds, the meadows warm in the sun. Almost like Carolina, where we come from. I float over the cabins and creek. Oh, girls, you made it to paradise without me. All right, Alice. Thank you for that. That was that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm curious as to how you combine all these different genres of poetry, prose, and songwriting. Is that a natural for you, or does it take some different skill sets, or what? I've always wanted to be a singer since I was three, and poetry happened when I was eight in eighth grade and I was told I had a terrible voice and I was wooden musically and so I put aside my dream of singing but I always had this hunger <laughs> to do mm -hmm. it and I got me some training and got me some lessons <laughs> and some gear and, and some gear and, and there I go <laughs> and yeah, suddenly so. I'm, I'm doing more songs than I am um, other things I'm doing more um, 
I'm doing more with music and I'm very happy doing so. It feels very natural. But I would not be in this place without my poetry work and my craft and reading, reading, reading other people's work, reading other people's poems, uh, listening to other songs, and also spreading my interest of not just folk music, but also bluegrass, old time, and listening for cues, um, playing with other people, and uh, hanging around a lot of songwriters so I can pick up uh, different um, techniques and see what's what makes a good poem, what makes a good song, what makes a good prose piece. And yeah. good thing I love doing, and I love I love learning, so it's it's pretty easy and fun for me. Well, David, you being a longtime poet, what what do you think? I mean, isn't isn't poetry a form of music? And I think it is. I'm just fascinated to hear you making the transition. Uh, I would think you start with the words and then go to the melody to the music, but as you've become more of a musician has it happened the other way it has yeah. yeah it has i mean this song was starting with words and then you have to find what can you do to make it interesting and cutting verses and uh, having some riffs but also having i was imagining it was a wagon wheel it was this constant it was a train of this is happening this is happening and what happens in the past you can't look behind because you're weak and okay. she she sees all this tragedy and she keeps going and it's it's her mantra to keep going no matter what tamson well isn't songwriting sort of a i mean poetry sometimes you read it and there's a lot left to be interpreted the, the songwriters do that too right i mean and, and of course ballads though you're telling stories kind of in a prose format i think a john Pry i think a john prine is a great poet who just never wrote it down and wrote it, read it as poetry but he sang it all the yes, time yeah. exactly and it's also uh, condensing so you're taking what was going on that folks can relate to so maybe you don't really care for my verses you don't care about the story but we but love we love the refrain right yeah, yeah. the refrain it's like <laughs> yeah. okay i mean can you get that can you understand that something <laughs> yeah. here she wants it to stop yeah. and she also wants to to um she's caught because she's caught for uh, my first um, go at it. I my line was I'm trading my life for three, which was trading because you're a trading post. They saw a lot of interacted with traders on the way to the Sierra Nevada mountains, and I didn't want her. It didn't seem right because trading my life for three sounded like she was um, cannibalizing herself for her kids, and I was like, no, that's not it. That's not it. Um, it was the reason she stayed put and cared for her kids. She also cared for her husband, and she's hoping the timing would re be right, where her kids would be rescued, then her husband would um, um, die humanely, uh, and she didn't want to euthanize him. She just would die humanely, and she would be by his side when he passed, and then she would be rescued, or then she could go off and help her kids. It didn't seem selfish at the time. She was trying to do both, and honor both her husband and her children. So, so it was Alice, a really you, hard decision. Alice, you're a walking... Uh Donner Wikipedia page. Yeah. I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, and, and in your and in your story, the Donner Party, the, the the monster is the weather. Now, David, you've had sort of an obsession with a monster of a different kind that was made famous in the 1800s, right? That's correct. Uh, yeah. I, t I, tell us about that. I assume you're talking about Frankenstein That's and his it. creature. Yeah. I have um, taught the novel for many years, and one of the things that I know you'll appreciate is we frequently had mock trials in yeah, bring, bring the law bring the lawyers in i've right? got to do that and, <laughs> and uh i want to defend the monster yeah yeah you know <laughs> um 
he would often, despite some of the terrible things he did, and you could, you could in fact get him off Landis, I'm sure, yeah. because there Reason, were, reasonable doubt. You think? Uh, uh, <laughs> more a matter. Of, yeah, there are many ways to defend his actions, and personally, not too many, in my opinion, to defend Victor Frankenstein's actions. So when I played judge, I had to be very careful. I never recused myself, though. <laughs> but no, it was a fascination because that novel has so much relevance to now and what we're dealing with. Just with. Tell, tell us about that. Well, um, I'm just fascinated that an 18-year-old girl could have written the original science fiction novel, or it could be considered the original manual for how to not parent children, <laughs> <laughs> or warnings about uh, what, what science will lead to if we don't temper it with some common sense and some uh, ethical considerations. Cloning, cloning, for example? Cloning, for example. Um, you know, we're talking about a story where uh, somebody brings a child into the world and runs away, which is one way of looking at it, or somebody who wants to see what they can accomplish without considering the consequences. There's just no, no way, as long as human nature is what it is, to get away from the relevance of it. And in recent years, when I encountered... Uh, the story of Henrietta Lacks and the idea that, you know, we now have, in her case, uh, she was an African-American woman whose cells were harvested at Johns Hopkins many years ago and have continued to live on long past her death. Um, and some of the implications of, of, of that story fascinated me as well. Um, oh, well, I'm glad I've got two obsessive poets and, oh, and, and, and prose writers on the show oh, today. Oh. Uh, but you have to be kind of obsessed to be a writer, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And that's why a lot of – I teach writing. I am an editor. I, I coach people. And I should have it in my uploading process when new folks come to me. Are you obsessed? Are you crazy? Yeah. Because if you're not, get <laughs> yeah. out of here. Because if, exactly. if you're not obsessed with it, then you can't expect the reader to be obsessed. Either. And you can't yeah. expect your coach to be obsessed. I mean, yeah. I want to help, but you have to – and I found – I'm so lucky that I found this subject matter because it hits on everything that I care about, family – uh, country, faith, heroism, lies, uh, sadness, anger, frustration, and the founding of America. So I guess, you know, that's sort of a, leads right into the author to author segment. That's kind of a tip. If you're going to write, find something that you, uh, you have a real interest in and, you know, it'll, it'll spur your imagination. So anyway, the author to author segment, let's, let's do that now. In season three here, we're uh, involving authors from seasons one and two to, to, to sort of come back, even though they're not sitting here, to help us with some uh, some questions. And I've got uh, a couple of questions here from Ann Campanella. Ann appeared in season two of the podcast and is the author of four collections of poetry, and she's the twice recipient of the Poet Laureate Award from the North Carolina Poetry Society and has written a wonderful memoir, Motherhood Lost and Found. Here are a couple of questions, and I'll, I'll throw them out to both of you, starting with uh, David. How does poetry feed you? Wow. Um, I told you these weren't going to be easy questions. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> it, uh, it gives me an opportunity to figure out what I want to say and what I'm feeling. And, you know, that sounds like the answer I might have given when I was a high school student, which is a little scary, but it still holds true. It's an opportunity for me now to play with words and there's this enormous power that you have to 
choose words and taste words and put them together and make sounds come out of your mouth that can move people and when it happens it's wonderful and you can also think about how those words play in other people's heads which is pretty awesome and that leads to another question that she has i'll throw this one to alice she um and ask uh first she says poetry is often a compression of language how does that compression add to the tension in your poems another great question I would say you have to find the biggest conflict and the biggest need and so for instance in in the in the song the biggest one was how can this how can the cold stop how can we get out of here and there's other considerations but those have to go away because you can't add them to the song or to the poem so you have to think about how can I say enough without over-saturating the piece and chewing the food for the reader and then um, weakening the piece by not honoring the reader's intelligence but still have enough there where everything's compressed. So what I do is I load up the title and I load up a title saying, okay, it's Aliens, Ripley, and if you know Ripley, that's Ellen Ripley from the Aliens franchise, and then I put the the name of the ship, and then some people may say, well, that's too hard, I'll have to do some research, but then there's a lot of folks who say, well, that's exactly what I needed, because I wanted to be specific, and I was taught, don't be general, be specific, hmm. and you're going to find your more authentic audience member, although I've had frustration, because I was as authentic and as direct and detailed as I could be in my most recent poetry book, Heroes Without Capes. But I turned off a lot of people who said, I don't get the sci-fi thing and I'm not going to read your poetry. <laughs> so okay. um, that was frustrating. But you know what? I did yeah. what I wanted to do. That's and I was right. very happy with my exactly. product. Right, right for yourself, right? It was yeah. right for myself, right? So here, here's one, David, from Anne that I think uh, is right down your alley. She says, poetry seems to turn off so many high school and college students, how could it be taught differently in order to foster a love of poetry? Number one, you've got to bring in um, some of contemporary poetry that that uh, people don't realize is out there, and you've got to embrace and enjoy the power of spoken word because people love language, they love the power of expressing themselves, and if they are given an opportunity to explore language, to read poetry, to share it, they will love it. It is going to happen. Um, I'm fascinated by slam poetry. I have a, I'm going to share a secret desire. I would love to be uh, in a slam competition, and I'm trying to rehearse my pieces that I would now, use. Now tell us, tell us what slam poetry is. <laughs> slam poetry is a combination of... Uh, drama and and poetry it is recitation um it is performance of your poetry to an audience that is going to embrace it give you a reaction or not embrace it it's exciting it's it's daring it makes poetry what it ought to be uh, because it's a spoken form it's not meant to be dead on the page and um and I'm fascinated with Instagram poets who have thousands of listeners or readers and hmm. so on. 
All right, so we got um, two more questions. This this one's coming from uh, Randall Jones. Randall appeared in season two of the podcast. He's a North Carolina author of several nonfiction books, including The Footsteps of Daniel Boone, Before They Were Heroes at King's Mountain, from time to time in North Carolina, and the editor of uh, Exploration, uh, where your piece uh, appears, uh, Alice. That's right. And so I'm going to give you – he only had one question, so it, must, it was real important to him, uh, and he talked about it uh, when he sent it to me about how, how he thought about it. Uh, and the question is, when did you know, what was the moment that you knew that you were a writer? Was it an instant? Was it over time? How did you know? You I get would struck by lightning yeah, or something? I yeah. would say probably, it may have happened before, but I can, I can see it. I was fourth grade, nine years old, and classmate Heather or she had her aunt, Mrs. Orr, whoever, <laughs> come and come to our class and talk about her children's book. And she was an author, and I wanted to be just like Heather Orr's aunt. I right. mean, that was, and she talked about publishing, and she talked about finding an editor. She talked about how her editor went through and, and made the corrections and made it a better book and how she shopped it and, and all that process. And this would have been 1983. I knew at that moment that I wanted to be a writer, but then I knew that it also would be hard and I was struggling with figuring out, okay, is this something I want to do, or what do I have to do is, or what I have, feel like my parents want me to do is have a, a math business career. And that was the biggest struggle I had in my young adulthood. And so it, either, carried, it, it carried on either for the make, next Either make years. money or follow your artistic dreams. Yeah. Right. And I really wish I would have had... Uh, Heather's aunt guide yeah. me as my mentor. I wish I would have seen yeah. her again. That would have, but I knew at that moment that's what what I wanted to be. And it probably happened before because I was doing weird things like producing newsletters when nobody told me to, or I was reading, or I was putting stage plays on in my parents' bedroom, and yeah. I was thinking like a writer. I was reading movie reviews. I was reading Das Boot movie review and paying attention to the movies that I couldn't go to, like Officer and a Gentleman. Well, why does that movie? And, and So I was interested in film Why is reviews. that rated R? Why, yeah, why, why is that rated R? And why is that movie review? And why are they so against yeah. that? So yeah. I was reading a lot of the paper in Dear Abby, and movie reviews were my favorite pieces right. in the paper. What about you, David? Uh, when did you know you were, were a writer? Well, I'm going to answer the question with what I'd like to say, but I am going to answer it. Alice, you will love this story, I think. I was in grad school at UNC Charlotte, and I want to give credit to the late Julian Mason, who just passed away last year. Julian Mason came into a graduate school English class with an advertisement for Sanskrit, which was the is the literary magazine at UNCC. And I thought, okay. I sent in three poems. They took two of them. And I thought, this is great. This is going to go on and on, you know. Um, and, of course, I soon learned that those kinds of acceptances are very rare. But I have to give him credit because he um, encouraged me to do that. And even though it's it's some kind of – it's the reason people are compulsive gamblers. You have a little bit of success and you think it's going to happen again. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I never – you know, I had been for years without thinking of this being a possibility. And that got me going. Um they were two god-awful poems, but they took them. And I think I've learned a few new tricks over the years. We all have old poems we, uh, we would like to forget, but they got us where we are. All right, we got two fun poems left. They're both short, uh, one from each of you. Uh, Dave, we're going to start with you since uh, Alice last sang. Now, are you going to sing this for us, David, or is this 
<laughs> Thank you for asking, but no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then then give us the title. And, uh, I mean, Alice has got her guitar here. You're welcome. I mean, she'll probably let you. <laughs> Alice, let's talk afterwards about whether this could be set to music. Okay. You know? Sounds right. great. Okay. This is Chuck Norris and Jesus. My resume as a thespian consists of just two roles. A cameo in silhouette and a black Stetson and pearl buttoned black shirt and jaw squared and arms akimbo for a video some students of mine were making, and a recurring role each summer enrobed and barefooted for the children at Vacation Bible School. When I mention the former, my listeners say, oh yes, they see the resemblance. But when I mention the latter, I'm usually met with silence. Over the years, I've fed multitudes, walked on water, calmed storms, patiently reminded the fellows to feed my sheep after I'm gone, raised an acquaintance or two from the dead, and managed to navigate the chancel steps without tangling my feet in the hem of my robe and using my father's name in vain in front of a circle of six-year-olds. I'm not allowed to turn their Kool-Aid into wine. I had a nightmare once that melded Borges' story, The Gospel According to Mark, with children of the corn. They cornered me in the organ loft and dragged me out to a cross made of landscape timbers. I woke myself just as they were all grabbing their tiny Fisher-Price hammers with real nails clenched in the corners of their mouths the way they'd all seen their fathers do. After that, I was most grateful that in Bible school we gloss over the finale of the Lamb's experience. Perhaps I'll be allowed to age out of the role. And yet, Whatever it might say about our choices of figures to revere, just know that anyone with whom I've ever shared this seems much more impressed that I have played the man who, his followers say, went up Niagara Falls in a cardboard box. <laughs> All right, David, so I had this vision, Gulliver's Travels a little bit with the little Fisher-Price hammers headed out there, you know, they're strapping you down. Um, what were you wearing at the time? Were you in your Jesus outfit or were you in your uh, Chuck Norris outfit? Oh, that was my Jesus outfit. Okay, all right, okay. Now, you, you do have a little bit of that Chuck Norris thing going here, you know, with the the beard and everything. So, you, you know, is that part of your past you're not telling us about? Uh, you, you know, um, the Chuck Norris part of the uh, the uh, career did not go very far. That was <laughs> that was a dead end. But, uh, but you kept in, being invited back to Vacation Bible School. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, where did this? I mean, where did this idea? This is two, two entirely different people and personalities here: Chuck Norris and and Jesus. So how do you, how do they get together in one place? I think I'll just leave that to people's <laughs> imagination. Um, not sure I want to go there. I might say something that I might have to answer to have, when I go might, back to might, my have, You might have to take, take back. Okay, we'll, we'll, yes. we'll leave that alone then. It, it's a fun piece. All right, Alice, you've got one uh, here that's uh, – it kind of speaks to some of the issues that uh, David wrote about in his uh, bibliography piece. So I'll let you do the title and, and read it for us. Bottom drawer. Dad tore into my room without knocking. Drunk? I'll rip that book apart if I see it again. It wouldn't be the first or last time he dad handled anything he didn't approve of. He saw the photos of dogs and marchers. So I hid the library book in my bottom drawer among the two short jeans and worn out socks. Eleven years after Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, I'm investigating the fire hoses, Dobermans, black and white people holding hands. Dr. King had to keep changing his shoes and spent over a week in jail. 
Even in third grade, I understood he fought for something bigger than him, and he died for it, like JFK, RFK, and John Lennon. My grandmother used to tell us about our noble Scottish and English ancestry, bishops and generals and slave owners, how we are better than everyone else. Is it my fault I'm hated at school? I sigh the book into my backpack, covered down. I know I'm different when Dad says, they need a strong hand to keep them in line. Who? Did he mean Jews, blacks, feminists, liberals, Democrats? Me? So Alice, um, what was going on in your life at the time you wrote this particular poem? I feel I've always been writing this poem in my, yeah. since it happened. Yeah, and where, where does this guilt come from in this passage? I mean, are, are you feeling some of the guilt from your ancestors yes. here? Yeah, absolutely, so, yeah. right. And the more that I'm studying my dad's side, um, his dad's mother's side and dad's father's side, uh, they were part of genocide. So we have the genocide of Africans and enslaves, and that's my dad's mother's side, and then my dad's father's side, we have the genocide, or not as much. Um, they, they participated in the Indian boarding schools, and there was a whole generation of them. Um, they were teaching and teaching, in quotes, the Indian kids in Toma, Wisconsin. And I did a little research, and the more I researched, I got emails that were shut down and some websites that were closed as soon as I started asking some questions. So there's some, some weirdness going on to this day when I started asking questions about my ancestors. And not that long ago, we're only talking 1903, 19, 1917. So these are, it's, it's getting quite interesting. But I was, I was feeling this because it really happened um, to me to destroy a book is sacrilege. And he was ready to destroy this library book. And that's where I first learned about the, the marches. And we learned a little bit about it at school because I went to a very progressive elementary school that was very diverse and they took me out of it to go into um, it wasn't not into a private school which was not predominantly white actually it was um, also diverse because um, and but it's just a different kind of diversity we had people who were from all over the world versus being black or Hispanic and it was so it was also cool that I was in a different environment um, later it wasn't all white so I, I learned a lot in that in that's in that um, place too but we did not talk that was a classical education when I moved to the private school uh, we did not talk about contemporary issues like they did in my elementary school which we also talked about Vietnam mm -hmm. and we had a fellow who had just survived Vietnam um, he was Vietnamese talking about what it was like on the ground and um, it was a raw experience and I wanted to have capture some of that when I when I started this poem, and, uh, and Dan, Al Dan, Dan Albergati from Conway, South Carolina, helped me revise this poem. So thank you, Dan. Yeah, and David, <laughs> you're over there nodding your head as, as she's talking. Did did you did this poem relate to you in some way? Well, one reason I'm nodding my head is I'm thinking about the different political topics that have come out in our conversation today. But I'm thinking about how, and Alice, I want you to agree or disagree, please. Poetry is so driven by curiosity that I know a little bit about your work. You know a little bit about mine. We have all these issues that are coming up, but they're coming from the fact that we, as poets, we're curious. We write about experience. We put things together. And I want people to understand is this is where our experience has taken us and the things that we care about, um, we don't have an agenda. We've just 
poetry's led us to that's this, right. and that's just pretty remarkable. And I think it, it's it's so honest. Uh, neither of us has an axe to grind. We've just been led to these places, and it's what we want to speak about. And our, our agenda here at Charlotte Readers Podcast is to have authors give voice to their written words, and y'all have done exactly that today, not only uh, by reading your work, but by singing it as well. So uh, I want to thank both of you for coming today. Before we, before we sign off, um, Alice, where can people find you? You've got a website? I do. It's aliceosborne.com, and Osborne is O-S-B-O-R-N, the simplest spelling that you can find of Osborne. Were you a cheerleader, too? I was not. Give us a D, give us an A, David. Come on. Where, where can people find you, David? Well, I will mention a couple of places. Uh, my book, Slow of Steady, and uh, can be found at Main Street Rags website, along with the uh, newest Cackalack anthology, which I have a piece in. And you can also find Alice's books there, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so Main Street Rag is excellent. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, sometime after this podcast airs that there may be Cackalack reading still going on in North and South Carolina. I've been lucky enough to have pieces uh, a couple of places online, Rise Up Review, Crack the Spine, Rock Bell Review. So uh, I don't have a website, but Google me. You can find other we, stuff we, if we, you're We can interested. still find you, yeah. yes. I, I, I'm well, out there. Well, I've had a lot of fun today. I hope you all have had a good time here today. Yeah. My pleasure. This was yeah. wonderful. Thank you, Landis. Yeah. Yeah. Thank all right. you. All right. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next week's episode, we meet young adult author Lisa Williams Klein. Lisa will be reading essays, short stories, and excerpts from her latest novel, One Week of You. What's the trick to writing about teen lives? Keep your brain in high school mode. In one week of you, Lisa did just that with a humorous take on young love. If you liked our show, please tell your friends, and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast, or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that. We will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.